Episode number 18, Sue LePage. And welcome back to the Title Block, a podcast about Canadian theatre designers, their history, and their craft. And I'm your host, Michael Cruz. Uh, back in 1997, I was at the Shaw Festival uh, in Niagara-on-the-Lake, Canada, uh, for one of the first seasons there. And I did a show called You Can't Take It With You, written by uh, Kaufman and Hart. I'm sure many people know it's a very famous play, done lots of times everywhere. And this time, it was a beautiful, beautiful set. It was uh, a couple stories high, uh, dark blue. It had little twinky lights in that would come on at certain points of time to sort of give it a little magic. And at the end of Act 1, when the uh, entire set just blows up from the fireworks explosion, there were, there were spark drops and a whole bunch of squibs, and uh, just the, the whole thing was just wired up to just blow up. Um, and it was so beautiful. The, the greatest thing about it was that it was backlit, by, uh, they were like light boxes uh, in all the walls, and at some point uh, they would glow from behind, and the and the what was previously the sort of very staid kind of Victorian blue uh, wallpaper would become this kind of swamp. It was just amazing. Anyways, that was designed by Ms. Sue LePage, and she that was her first uh, foray at the Shaw Festival. And I was really happy to be an assistant uh, for Kevin Lamont on that production. And today, I get the pleasure of having a conversation with her at the Shaw Festival again. Uh, so we'll be talking to her about her uh, beginning of her career. It's another short interview. We've had uh, about an hour long to chat. Uh, and we're also going to be talking about um, the production of Top Girls by Carol Churchill uh, that Sue designed the set and costumes for, directed by Vicki Anderson, lit by Louise Guineau. So, look forward to that. Uh, but first, I just want to share a couple uh, updates. I'm at uh, the Fringe Tent many days of the week. I don't have a show there. I'm just drinking some beer with my friends. Uh, the Fringe, of course, is on here in Toronto. Uh, there's lots of great plays, 148 productions uh, this year in 2015. Uh, I'm going to see a couple of them. I'm not a big Fringe goer, but uh, I sort of wait around to see what's popular and what's, uh, what's spectacular, and I, I go to see that. Uh, I'm not sure if that is in the f- spirit of the fringe, but um, you know I'm a busy guy. I can't, uh, I can't wait around. Anyways, so that's uh, that's going on right now. Um, the Shaw Festival obviously had its second opening a couple weeks ago. Uh, Top Girls was one of those, so uh, this will be a great uh, primer for that production if you want to go see it. Uh, and I would encourage you to go. It's a great season this year. So there you go. That's uh, that's it. Let's uh, let's turn to my conversation with Sue LePage. And uh, remember to go to the webpage for uh, show notes. I've listed, um, I've been concentrating on on names, I think mostly, but there's a couple different links in there uh, regarding the uh, the Donnelly's plays, the various Donnelly's plays that were done. That might interest some of you. So here you go. Here's my interview with Sue LePage. Uh, Sue LePage, welcome to the title block. Thank you so much for joining me today here at the Shaw Festival. Pleasure, Michael. Thank you. So let's talk first about your early 
that your your first uh, decision to go into theater. First of all, where did you grow up? I grew up in Toronto. Ah, terrific. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and what made you, uh, did you make the decision in high school or university, or did you take some time to figure things out? How did you come to that, uh, I, that point? I started to go to theater. I, there was a series at the Royal Alex where you, students could get up into the second balcony for 50 cents or something. And uh, I know there was a, a theater Toronto season there and quite a bit. It seemed like there was theater starting to happen more in Toronto. And I was curious enough, this would be midway through high school, that I wanted to see things. And uh, and we'd had some school trips to Stratford and, and that sort of thing. I remember vividly from the parking lot at Stratford, probably climbing off the bus, looking down into the basement where the prop shop used to be, where the windows were all around there, just at your feet, and seeing somebody make an animal on the top of a Roman helmet, like some kind of a uh, uh, you know, a mousy, varminty-looking thing on the top to hold the comb on a on a on a Roman helmet, and going, hmm, 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 and I I think in retrospect it must have been Roy Brown who was doing it right. because uh, that makes sense in terms of the timing and who was there, but that's all in retrospect. Certainly in high school, I I I was interested in being in the drama club, but I I I wasn't convinced. I took drama at um, the University of Guelph. Mm -hmm. And uh, at that point, it was a very sort of a round, a small but rounded program. So you did a little bit of everything. Mm -hmm. So I thought of acting and did quite a bit of acting there. But what was um, interesting there was there was a professor named Bruce Koenig, who I now realize was just in his 20s, um, who he, he was a, he w had a bit of range. He was the technical director for a lot of the production productions and taught the um, production courses and he also taught the Ibsen and Strindberg courses so there was no um, tech ghetto uh, there and I certainly wanted to try it all that that was uh, th that was part of it and so that really in terms of design training the courses that I happened to take there I know there was a drafting course and a history of furniture and a and a and certainly some um, uh, some 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 drama history, um, but all of that was just plain interesting. I I don't know what I thought I was aiming for, mm -hmm. and this would been have been around uh, in the early seventies also, where there was small theater starting to happen in Toronto. So I wasn't in at the ground ground floor in terms of the Tarragons and the Pasmerize, but I was of an age to be curious certainly, and when uh, I did get out of, uh, of um, uh, University of Guelph, my feeling was then that um, whew, if I do really want to be a, a, an actor, I would need to, to, to do more training. I, you know, I wasn't going to be just trying something out for the fun of it. Mm -hmm. and, um, and it seemed to me there were other things just to try and fool around and do while I was thinking about it all. Um, and so at in that sense, I got uh, I got a short season at Stratford working backstage as a, just sort of with a glue gun and helping Desmond Healy and Leslie Hurry and all kinds of amazing people. But it, uh, as the most junior of junior, most temporary of temporary people, and uh, and then I went off to e Europe. There was a there was a, a summer school at the uh, affiliated with the Edinburgh Festival that I went to back in the early. Uh, it, I think that was 1973. I'm, I'm, I'm close. I might be a year out. 
But uh, so anyway, it, it, all of that made me orient myself to to the design. Once I was there at Stratford, looking at all of that pretty glorious stuff, I I, I wanted to try it. Yeah. <laughs> That's fantastic. And who um, did you apprentice with anybody as a designer? Like when you made the decision to be a designer, uh, did you seek anybody out specifically? Well, I had. Uh, I had a chance to to come at it from um, different angles. I, I I was worked as an assistant, I suppose at Stratford, but not exclusively at Stratford, for almost ten years while doing designs in small smaller places on my own. And really, it was being an assistant at Stratford, and I think it's still true that gives you your long pants in terms of people hiring you to do the regionals and some other things like that too. So I was, I had a, I had a, I had a great time doing everything. I, I don't feel and never did that, uh, by being the assistant scenic painter, I wasted my time or by doing jewelry for a season or boots and shoes. I did my God, I thought I would become an alcoholic by the time I got through that year <laughs> in the basement. But, uh, uh, and then I was certainly an assistant there and elsewhere. I went to, um, I went to Halifax. Uh, uh, I guess it was the first season that John Wood was there and was, um, an assistant for the season to John Ferguson. And I'd seen John Ferguson at, um, uh, at Stratford as the junior designer. His office was literally in the loading dock. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I did talk to him about, might like to do that, and what what did you do first, and all of that. So I, I, I think I asked him about it all and got a picture of, you know, the steps you might take uh, th- uh, through him. That's fantastic. Um, now, what was your first professional design then? What did you get hired? Who hired you first? Who made that choice? Well, I think that would probably be the, the uh, uh, at the Neptune. Uh, and, and I don't know what would count and what wouldn't count as professional. But uh, at the Neptune, I was given initially a tiny show, sort of a bucket of paint and, and just whatever was in stock, sort of. And um, I created, there was Brecht on Brecht, was a very small addition to the season, and I was given that to do. And then by the time I came back for a season, still primarily as a, uh, an assistant down there, which really meant you did everything. You were the shopper and the scenic artist and, you know, all kinds of, all kinds of things, which I loved. Mm-hmm. By the second season, they gave me uh, little sh- smaller shows to do on my own. Mm-hmm. So I felt like one of the things that I did that called for a full set and uh, the whole works was um, the effect of gamma rays on Man in the Moon marigolds. Mm-hmm. Uh, That was a part of a sort of a, I think it was a summer add-on season or something. I'm not quite sure how it worked. But anyway, I had that as something of my own to do before I finished that Mm -hmm. cycle. I also worked with NDWT. They were the ones who had put together the James Rainey Donnelly trilogy. Okay, now what does that stand for? Well, they wouldn't tell at the time, uh, but really it was, it was ne'er-do-well thespians. I'm sure that's now recorded as, as uh, but that was Keith Turnbull and uh, Jerry Franken and the gang who had, had done the Donnellys, and I hadn't been part of the initial putting of those shows together. Mm-hmm. But when they went to do a national tour, I was a sort of coordinator bringing those things back together for them to tour with. And I went on from there and did some shows with them at the Bathurst Street Theatre. So that, in terms of small theatre in Toronto, mm-hmm. um, 
it was through that connection that I would have started at Tarragon and other places as well. That's terrific. Can I just I just want to talk about the Donnellys for a second. That's a pretty um, significant uh, play in Canadian theater yeah. history. Like it's come yeah. back a couple times in Blythe. I know I've seen it down there. But uh, describe that kind of. I mean, you came in after it had it had uh, had mm. been developed, but. But how was the... Oh, no, that was very important culturally, what it was and what it represented. It was, uh, this was not the same Donnellys as as the Passmerai Donnellys. Passmerai Donnellys, they were dueling Donnellys. (laughs) And uh, Passmerai Donnellys was a a collective creation, was based, uh, they used a novel by, what was his name, Kelly... Uh, as a sort of source material and created it themselves. The, these, this um, Donnelly's that we're talking about was written by um, uh, James Rainey. Um, and, and that's the one in terms of true literary merit, the, the one that in some ways has, has survived, uh, or at least it's produced often by schools. It's a huge cast and a huge undertaking. And, and, uh, uh, but the importance of Canadian history and the idea of telling our own stories and the idea of working collectively and kind of close to the ground. And the, uh, um, Rainey himself was very suspicious of um, design, uh, um, in any formal way, because his theater and his philosophy was so strongly based in play and amateur theater. So he worked with amateur groups and, and created with communities uh, in a tradition that survives. Um, he, he was certainly very active in that, as was Keith Turnbull and the whole NDWT company. But the whole idea was that uh, sort of out of the tickle trunk comes... Uh, uh, theater or the thing that you go out and find f- you finding your own prop and setting your own props and all so it was a very sneaky way as a designer to be trained and um, the fact that I had both ends of the spectrum with all the learning of craft and all the that 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 was involved in Stratford and then going to the opposite end of the spectrum and and giving it doing it with the philosophy of create it from the from the ground up mm-hmm. I, I I believed in both those things and it and it didn't feel like a contradiction at all that's fantastic um, that's great now the training that you got at Guelph um, your your skills to communicate as a designer I guess were the, the essentials, the core stuff was, was developed mm-hmm. there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, did you have any um, problem moving between uh, small theater and large theater, having gone through the Stratford model? Was that a difficult transition, or was that uh, well, fairly I, uh, intuitive? I, I don't think... The thing is, I think I always thought of, of uh, design as theater-making, I, I I didn't want to separate um, design from rehearsal from the process. So the idea of of the uh, part of a designer's job was to somehow integrate what was going on, or the ideal of a company where everybody assumed multiple roles. That was really part. And this is the seventies. It was it was philosophically sort of a, a a real baseline for anything that I would have wanted to do artistically. But um, I never, I never uh, rejected in any way the richness of the poetry and of Shakespeare and the skills of all the artisans around me at Stratford. It seemed to me that it was my own thing and quite a special thing to say, no, it's all the same. It's all the same world. I was determined that it was, 
it, it, it was all possible to integrate. That's so. terrific. Now, how did you end up um, getting to Shaw? I mean, you'd gone through the, the large theater model, obviously, with Stratford, so I imagine it would be easy to transfer well, to another company. But how did you end up here your first it, time? I think it's always coincidence. I don't think it was anything um, plotted and planned. Um, I was at Stratford in different eras, in different roles. So I was there initially as a, a sort of jack-of-all-trades and happy to, to learn whatever I could learn. I was back as an assistant during the Robin Phillips era and that and got a few shows of my own during that time too. I did the, the costumes for Beggar's Opera and um, oh, I can't even remember now. I could come I could come up with it's a short list, but it's a list. I just just not quite there. And um, and then also then in John Neville's time, I was back and and I was a grown up by that time. I was really given shows to do. And then there was a sort of hiatus, a time when I wasn't at either of the festivals. I was busy, um, but. Um, uh, I, I was I wasn't at either place, and I believe it probably was Neil Monroe that would have have brought me to Shaw, and I think it would just be coincidental. They'd um, um, whether they'd already uh, I mean Leslie Frankish was working here around that time. Bill Schmuck was certainly working here, and I think it's just the way the deck is shuffled. And I knew Neil from his work at the National Arts Centre and at at Neptune, that would have been that John Wood connection originally, but I worked uh, uh, with him a lot, his Hamlet in both those places, and, you know, some some wonderful, wonderful shows. Uh, so he, I wouldn't say he brought me, but it was to work with him um, on You Can't Take It With You. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, what is that, 17 years ago, 18 years ago, something like that. Yeah, that was... Uh I think I was here for that. <laughs> yeah. I think I was Kevin Lamont's assistant. That was the one in 1998, right? Yes, oh that sounds about right. God, okay, yes, I remember that show. Yeah. Yay. Um, which was delightful, by the way. Oh, I loved it. It was wonderful. But I hadn't really done my apprenticeship here the way I had done it at, at, uh, at, at Stratford. So I feel like I've built really important relationships since, and it's certainly, there's no question, it's one of my homes. But I was initially a guest at that point. And, uh, and not somebody who'd come up through the, the ranks as I had at Stratford. So it's, a, it's a, just a slightly different kind of thing. Right, of course. <laughs> um, that's terrific. Now let's talk about, we've got to, about, this is going to be a short interview for people yeah. who are listening in, um, because you have to get going. But let's start talking about uh, uh, the play you're doing here this summer, and mm -hmm. that's uh, Top Girl, right? Mm -hmm. okay. Top Girls. Top Girls. Mm -hmm. I read the website only last <laughs> night. Um, t first of all, describe for the people who don't know the play, uh, there's a quick synopsis, a bit of a history of the, of the playwright. It was uh, mm -hmm. uh, Carol Churchill. Carol Churchill, yeah. Oh, yeah. Good work. Thank you. Um, <laughs> just describing the synopsis and the, and the context and, uh, and, mm -hmm. and to give people an idea of what we're talking about. Uh, Top, Top Girls is um, um, a play uh, by Carol Churchill, very, very uh, well-known British um, play playwright, written in 1982, I think. Not her first, but certainly part of her first flourishing. And uh, um, uh, she's a very experimental uh, playwright, and she has not stopped. She's she's uh, fascinating, um, and her work has always been 
um, to varying degrees feminist and political, and um, she'd be one who would be very well described as a new Shavian, as related to Shaw, and the idea of um, making uh, people uncomfortable about the social mores that they take for granted, about examining things that people don't usually examine at all. That's that's Carol Churchill. And, uh, and this... Uh, prescient sort of play um, was was um, about uh, women, about women getting ahead in the world, and this was at the very beginning of the Margaret Thatcher era mm-hmm. in, uh, in Britain. And what led up to that era was all kinds of labor strife and the beginning of a real split in Britain. And um, it's possible to say that uh, that Britain changed during this time and and never went back, that it, it, it became a different country during this time. Now, it's famous for its initial scene, which is a dinner party scene, which uh, uh, the Marlene, who is the lead character, and the, the, a woman who's um, very ambitious and has just received a promotion in her work, she calls a fantasy dinner party and invi- invites various women from history. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have Pope Joan and Patient Griselda and Isabella Bird, the British explorer, and uh, there's there's six to the dinner party, and uh, um, a, a Japanese um, consort. Uh, um, I'm I'm missing a couple now, but anyway, you get the idea that it's a really diverse and interesting group. It really is a dinner party. They chat and get to know each other and tell their stories and drink a lot of white wine. And, and of course, many of these stories take a turn and they are shocking. These stories are shocking. And uh, so suddenly that scene ends in, and um, we jump into contemporary story of life in Britain. There's a, a series of scenes in the office where Marlene works. And then it finishes with a scene back in the kitchen of her sister. And we realize by that time that her sister has been bringing up Marlene's child, Mm -hmm. and it's the split between working class and middle class ambition and how far Marlene has and has not traveled on this road. And it's a a devastating and very strong play. Mm -hmm. So here we are a whole generation later. And that's why I, I, I... I could say pretty confidently, I wasn't part of the choosing of it, but I'd say very confidently that's why it's here and why it's here this season is the chance to look at this a whole generation later. The the women who were going through those things in the early 80s will be bringing their daughters who are close to that age. Right. I mean, it's it's quite something that way. And for everybody, not not for women exclusively, because I don't... There'd be there'd be nobody um, um, over forty who who wouldn't uh, be kind of both drawn in a bit repulsed. It's that thing that things have changed dramatically and yet they haven't. So it's it's it, and everyone's reaction will be different. <laughs> and how now? How do you um, how did you start to get into the play? So how did you find your way as a designer to start expressing? Now, first of all, you're doing costumes and set. Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, how did you? Uh, like, do you analyze the play? How did you get your, find your way uh, through um, coming up with your original concepts? Well, I um, I really am text based. So generally speaking, yes, I would I would read and read, and and I I certainly. I read a couple of times 
for interest and pleasure before I read technically, but I would do that, certainly also read technically before meetings started. And uh, so just a f certainly to, to make sure that I had a, a feeling of how I liked the play and what I felt about the play and what the play at this preliminary stage, before I've had a chance to, to, to do a lot of homework or, or, or learn more, more by doing, well, what does it feel like to me? Um, but one of the things that happens here, of course, and because of long experience, is one of the first things I would be aware of is we're doing this in the courthouse theater. Mm -hmm. And the courthouse is a wonderful, wonderful, intimate space. It's a thrust, and it's tiny. And so it, it has the advantage of creating a very close, direct relationship with the audience, which is pretty thrilling. But for a play that's set in multiple locations and uh, um, uh, to, to set a tone or a style, it almost always calls for some kind of um, abstraction or... or uh, and, and that's not to say high concept, there's a difference, but you need to make a choice that you can stick with in some ways that always involves nobody anymore, designers or anyone else, wants to watch laborious scene changes that aren't there for a reason. If they're really there for a reason, like, oh my God, this is how it used to always be done, or you need time to think about what you've just seen, it's not that, it's not that things have to be instantaneous, but the idea of how it's presented in that space is, is equally part of your approach, your style, whatever you want to call it. Um, I was also working with a, a, a woman director, Vicki Anderson, mm -hmm. who has a very particular way of working herself. I haven't actually done um, uh, shows with her as designer director um, in the past, but she's been a designer as well as a director. And, uh, and she has her own company and she's got strong um, attitudes about uh, uh, aesthetics and uh, presentation of theater and the kinds of performance styles that she's interested in. So one of the things that I would determine is that I'm bringing myself to this process, but I wanna make sure that what we're doing is actually Vicky's production. Um, and that, I don't know if I had a constant diet of that, of, of somehow facing myself. I can't say that I would be entirely happy, but I think that's just as interesting in some ways as saying this is what I think it should all look like. If I can, if I can explore somebody else's aesthetic and way of working and feed into it and question it, that kind of dialogue, that's so enriching. But I would have had the idea in this case that... Um, I wouldn't bow to Vicky's every whim, but if I can catch on to what she's after and what she wants to do with the piece, then I'm there. Mm -hmm. That's that's what that's my job. Yeah. I um, how do you approach? Uh, I was going to ask about scene changes because you mentioned it. The uh, very often, uh, the way that you get from A to B. Uh, by and I'm talking about mostly amateur uh, cases, and I think some new mm -hmm. directors as well, where they're so focused on the text, getting between scene one and scene two is they don't feel it's their concern or they don't think about it enough. Um, how do you approach? Um, is this something that the director, as far as you're concerned, is the director solely responsible for? How do you facilitate those changes as a designer? Um, 
and and you must you must incorporate those ideas into your original like in how you design set A and set B in order for them to blend together, yeah. right? Yeah. I, I'm, it's certainly not the director's responsibility. In some ways, it's a very important part of that initial dialogue, designer-director dialogue. If you don't deal on some level with the principle of what the, the scene changes will be like, um, uh, you, you, you can't wait to consider it because it does have to be integrated in, into the whole. If you haven't got a... Uh, I've certainly done... Um, one of my favorite productions I ever did here was uh, Christopher Newton's um, uh, uh, Devil's D- not Doctor's Dilemma. Right. I'll get those D's mixed up. <laughs> and um, those were those were f- absolutely fabulous um, uh, scene changes. And they it was when he brought me the music he wanted to use mm-hmm. that we knew that we knew where we were going, and it affected the style of the whole. But it can happen any number of ways. I think one of the things is not to be completely quashed creatively by the demands of the scene changes. Somehow go, oh yeah, it's all about that, but it's not. But it is, but it's not. And uh, it's 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 sometimes the biggest challenge of the piece. There's no question. Yeah. Terrific. So now um, you've you've just sort of you've you've got a framework, you know, now in uh, you've got a framework to envision the play. How do you? What's your next step? Um, do you build a model first? Do you do renderings, uh, floor plan? With um, 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 uh, with something really complicated, I can imagine doing a very rough storyboard process. Like if it's something like an opera or something extensive, I might sit down with the uh, um, the director and what's really just a text conversation and everything. But I might have a a lot of paper with me, and I might I might be drawing little stick figures far apart and together and, you know, the, the, just, just, just quick spatial um, ideas. But more, more often, I would say it's, it's, uh, it's back and forth between very rough model and a glance over my shoulder at the floor plan. I would never develop a detailed floor plan um, without working in three dimensions. Um, but those could be as simple as just folded little pieces of paper. I, it, it's in its scale, of course, it's scale, but with no emphasis on the time it takes to construct things or anything. You know, it's it's a lot, just a lot of tape and uh, <laughs> 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 little tiny bits of pe- pieces of paper. That's right. Um, <laughs> now, uh, th- this will probably you're a late opener, right? You're the second. We're in the middle way. In the middle. So uh, this won't be out. The podcast itself won't be out until uh, till about later. Yeah. So I don't think we'll be doing any spoilers. But describe yeah. what uh, the, at the end of this process what your main concept was then that you and Vicky developed. Well, it, it's a it's a um, it's a if it's a very strong and particular concept, and it, it was there as a as a principle as a way of of doing the show. It was there from very early stages, the first meeting or two, and how exactly to execute it has been something that we've been working on ever since. But um, uh, what we have is, before the show even starts, there are um, six uh, vanity tables slash desks that are um, uh, spaced around the outside of the, the perimeter of the courthouse stage with a dinner party waiting to happen in the middle and with its table all pretty well set. Um, and at the, each of these spaces, um, 
um, it belongs to an actress who does some some variation on some preparation there. It's all like a big dressing room. Upstage we have lockers and mirrors, and um, uh, and basically I think. Uh, without giving too much away, I would say the idea of preparing for the show is partly that the idea of these dinner guests um, uh, making elaborate uh, uh, preparations to become a person from a Bruegel painting or a Japanese empress or whatever, there beside them is a woman putting her makeup on just simply for a contemporary look. So that we all as women are are putting on a kind of mask and theatrical presentation um, to f f to present our social selves, and uh, so we don't want to hammer that over the head. I don't know if the program note will mention that in so many words, but this idea that um, that the, we are connected to all women of history and contemporary times are connected by this this confrontation with the mirror, mm -hmm. and uh, and this idea of who they who they are and who they present socially. So those vanity tables have mirrors that flip down, mm -hmm. and they then become literally the workhorses of the rest of the play. So they're the desks in the office and the kitchen table and counter, and they're all shoved around very freely by the actors themselves. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's great. And now, how when were these decisions originally made? Because I think that what's important to remember down the Shaw is that um, there's a lot of front end. <laughs> decisions that are made, and then months later it gets built, Yeah, and, and then you rehearse on it. So um, when did you start the process with I'm making? trying to remember. I guess it was, I, I was away in September, so I think it would have been October that we got, we might have talked a little bit before that, um, but I think I had, I think I had deadlines in November and perhaps a final in December. You know, it's, it was through the fall, right. through the fall. Yeah. Yeah. And it's now May. Yes. And you're in rehearsal. Yes. yes. So how do you respond to discoveries there? I mean, you can't really change. I mean, you're not building a box set necessarily, so you're not, you're not, not going to be able to, you're not, you don't have the, you're not saddled with the idea of having to change the walls. Mm -hmm. But how do you respond to discoveries that come up with, in the, in the rehearsal process, to something that was decided well, I think, six months ago. I think it's always, it's always a little different, and you make some kind of a pact, and you try to be a good guesser, and you know that it's a game of odds, not, not, no perfect scores on anything. Mm -hmm. um, but this is because of the way um, we, were, we were planning this with these table desks that were meant to be so versatile. Um, um, Vicky and I struck a bargain that this was the way we could do this piece. Mm -hmm. But also that those elements, the desks, the, sh the, the moving pieces, really for the most part had to be present at the beginning of rehearsal. Mm -hmm. That that was going to be part of the creative process for them and they had to have the real things in terms of the basics in hand. And we specified what belonged on that list and what didn't. Mm -hmm. And, um, and we, we're still in negotiation a bit. We certainly would send in a whole bunch of... Um, of things for the beginning of rehearsal, some of which were sort of auditioning to be kept, mm -hmm. but most of which were just placeholders until we had the actual detail for props and that sort of thing. But set elements were pretty well agreed to. Now, we did change a few things, but Vicky would do that with the understanding that she wasn't creating a whole new 
uh, um, process, but that something would be combined or revised or and 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 we've we've had our odd scrambly week and stuff with those sorts of things, but it's a kind of it's a kind of pact. If you're the kind of person that doesn't like to see your plans turned upside down, don't do this. <laughs> you have to somehow um, be a little bit resilient in an honest way so that you actually, it doesn't take you too long to actually see the upside mm-hmm. of change. And, um, and in some shows that's harder than others, and with some groups of people it's harder than others, but always to go, no, 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 I'm there, I want to know what's going to happen next. And that is the only thing that will get you through. Because you have to turn around and then go to these production people, some of whom have lavished hours and hours on these things that you're in the process of rejecting through no fault of theirs and you have to go guess what it's an interesting idea and i i'm so sorry but look what we're going to do and uh, and and that's 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 why it's good in a place like shaw to build up those relationships over time mm-hmm. because the shops are highly skilled and sympathetic and the stage management is great and and you you need that's collaboration yeah. that's collaboration and then, Collaboration is when it's not just when it's nice, it's when it's it's not nice. Yes, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You do one to wait for the other one, right? Yeah. So um, uh, let's just talk about, in the last little while, uh, yeah. let's just talk about the costumes, because you're always doing yeah. the costumes. Now, yeah. are you doing this in period, or is this contemporary? Well, it's, it's, um, it's, it's, I guess it's in period. Um, th- th- we need the flavor of the 80s in those contemporary scenes. Mm-hmm. And uh, but you're 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 getting me right where I live right now because it's so fascinating. I've been in Value Village looking for original things. There's some things we're building from scratch, but even at uh, Shaw, there's lots of money pressure. We couldn't be building this whole show by any means. So standing there in the Value Village, waiting for the right red dress to come in is not is not the way to spend your days. Yeah. But you're still walking around with your fingers crossed. And the other thing, of course, is that the '80s is back in the stores in terms of fashion, but always with a twist. Mm-hmm. So I really, you know, if if I could if I could accompany this, it would probably be with this kind of funny look on my face standing in the middle of Forever 21 trying to go, I'm having deja vu, but none of it is quite right. right. So <laughs> it's, it's, it's fun, but it's tricky. Yeah. And how do you, now the, the characters, um, the characters were in the dinner party at the beginning. Are mm-hmm. they, do they transform into the, yes. right. Yeah. So how do they have any relation between their character at the beginning and the, who they become later? Or is there a connection or is it just, are there two different different thought experiments, and they're connected through ideas and not through the character? Carol Churchill has said that the doubling and the casting isn't. She doesn't. She hasn't set it, and she welcomes people to uh, change that. But of course, almost whatever the, the the swap is, that one informs the other is is going to grow and develop. Yeah. And uh, so the the two actresses that are going to be the sisters uh, at the end of the piece. Those, those, of course, those seeds are planted for them, and and whether they really are for for the audience is not essential, but um, it probably enriches the whole thing, just part of the weave. Yes, exactly. Now, how do you? Um, uh, this is a, a bit of a theme too. We talked about uh, the Shaw Festival and the other other festivals, and you do a lot of independent work as well. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you find the transition between? All this support and giant shops and all. I mean, I mean, yes, budgets are tight, but the, the money you you know your per costume here is probably a lot more than it is at the Tarragon mm-hmm. or at the Pasper. 
past Mirai. So how do you find that transition and how do you find your way around it? Like, it Oh, it changes day by day. I'm still willing initially um, to get out there and, and uh, dig. But there are things that I literally, the energy to, to you know, I can't, I can't cobble together my own set and I can't pretend I can. There, there, are, there are things that uh, I, I'm, I'm not probably as flexible as I would like to think I am. On the other hand, it, it's the flexible mind is the most important thing and the people will, will find ways to accommodate things. And again, it's still that um, there's never, ever, ever only one right way to do something. And, um, and believing that and 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 yet focusing i think in with new work and small theaters to 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 do things simply but to to do them confidently is um is is very important so i probably am in some ways a minimalist but i go if i can keep, get keep the idea simple and versatile then let me stake a claim to the space even if we have nothing less, let me glue a bunch of newspaper to the floor with wallpaper paste. Let me, let me do something that, that gives us all confidence that this is unique, mm -hmm. a unique place and a unique combination of circumstance. And um, so that's not always a money question. And, uh, and again, I can't do the, the legwork as happily as I might have, and, and I'm probably stuck in all kinds of ways, and I'm not even aware of them to tell you. But, uh, and I certainly, I'm always bumping into things where you go, well, this isn't the right way. I wonder if it'll work. Mm -hmm. But um, that's, that's it, isn't it? Because yeah. it's always different. Yeah. Yeah. I always felt that um, when you're working in a small space and you have a play with, uh, you know, 12 scenes and they take place in 17 different places. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's interesting math. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, always, I always tell the, the, the director, I try to work out that, uh, you know, let's have one or two great looks that, mm -hmm. are, that inform the piece yep. rather than 17 thin stretch yep. looks yep. That, that, that maybe get there, but you know, yep. most of the time don't. It's yep. better to have a one clear idea than have 12 yep. really not really well yep. realized ideas. Well, and I think if you if if um, um, your audience does come and see Top Girls, that's exactly what we've got. Play to play to something, make one thing kind of fabulous, and we're all pretty good at following narrative. We're all pretty good at appreciating acting chops. Mm -hmm. Some in some cases, all we're doing is pushing those fabulous things out of the way, mm -hmm. and that's just fine. Mm -hmm. It works well. That's great. And just one last question before we end, and this is uh, about training and mentorship. Um, what do you think uh, people need to bring with them to the table to succeed as a young designer now? Uh, maybe that's different than when you were mm -hmm. beginning, because uh, I'm sure things have changed. The market has yeah. changed, finances, even culturally. Um, what do you think they need to bring with them now to be a success as a designer? I don't think there's any guarantee of being a success at this, but I think if you if you start to sort of build up your interests and your skills and your, then take them wherever you have opportunity. I I don't think you can have a fixed idea of where you will end up at all, and I think as long as you can find a bit of a challenge in what you're doing, whether, whether you're working backstage in some capacity or you're out there trying to figure it all out for a nickel 
or you're working as the most uh, junior of the juniors on a film set or, or any of those things. There's stuff to pick up and gather. The other thing is, is look to your peers whose work you're interested in. Never lose sight of the people you're curious about. And even if they're not at the level where their shows are being designed or whatever, watch their work. Keep in touch with what you think your peers are doing because um, things change all the time. You, you, you don't know where that stuff... So you really, you have, to, you have to be responsible to yourself to keep yourself interested in what you're doing, whatever it happens to be. I think you often find that designers come from all over the place, that they're not all classically trained or anything else. And I think learning to think and learning to, to, to communicate well and learning to, to read and extrapolate from that, I mean, you know, I'm so glad that, you know, we're talking to people who love the theater, but maybe they'll be the world's greatest animator. I, you know, and all of that is fine. All of that's not lost time in any way. That's terrific. Thank you so much, Sue, for joining us on the title blog. Okay. Pleasure. And that was designer Sue LePage speaking to me from the design studio at the Shaw Festival in Niagara on the Lake. Next time, more from the Shaw Festival when I interview the head of design at the Shaw Festival, William Schmuck. The music for this podcast is Podsafe Music from the 1990s called See You by the Lights. You can find them at roughtraderecords.com forward slash the 1990s. Please go to iTunes and give us a review. It'll help get the word out about this podcast and share the history of theatre design in Canada. And you can follow us on Twitter at the title block CA and on Facebook.com forward slash the title block podcast. You can send comments and requests by email to the title block at gmail.com. Feel free to share this with your friends, colleagues, students, and teachers, or listen to it while you thumb through clothing racks at Value Village for pennies an hour, wishing you were at the fringe tent with a pint. I'm Michael Cruz, and I'll see you next time on The Title Block. I see you like-